You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, If we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200-proof strength of the Gospel in Romans. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you guys. It's good to have Cade here as our guest this morning. And we're going to do something that we don't typically do because this isn't something we do on a regular basis. But uh, I'm going to have, uh, I was going to say Cade, come up here. I'm going to have Chris Kyle come on up here for just a minute. So Chris, if you wouldn't mind coming up. Jess, if you wouldn't mind joining him, that would be awesome. This is not like church discipline, so I don't want to make the room heavy. Like, you guys want to see what happens when you sin here? Right here. Start taking my belt off. (laughs) Sorry, that's not, I don't even know. It's funny. Uh, Maybe it is a little. I think it is. Okay, all right. So, Chris is a lot of things. He is a husband, he is a father, and we've seen him faithful in those things. He's a professor of linguistics at the University of Oregon. Got your PhD from Phoenix Online, the Harvard of Online Education. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Where did you get your, where'd you? Georgia State. George State, okay. You guys have lived all over, but you guys have been plugged into our family now for how many years? Five years, okay, yeah. This is what we've seen from Chris since he's been plugged in at our church family, and I would say the same thing for, for Jess, is there's been a faithful consistency to the gospel, a faithful consistency to rest in the gospel, to teach the gospel, but to also live consistent to their new identity that they have in the gospel. And so we've been grateful for them to get to know them, but we've also just been grateful to observe them and have them a part of our church family. We've observed the way that they've loved and served many members of our church family. So this last week, we had a members meeting, and our members voted in Chris as an elder for Gospel Community Church. And so I want to read the qualifications briefly for what an elder is at our, in Scripture. So it, it says this in First Timothy 3, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Our members looked at Chris's life, assessed Chris's life, and voted him and affirmed him in as an elder on February 18th. And so Chris is now officially a pastor of Gospel Community Church. And so we want to celebrate that this morning. If you guys want to give him a round of applause. The reason why Jess is up here is not because we are saying Jess is also a pastor alongside of Chris, but we recognize this, that if the enemy wants to come in and try to wreak havoc on the church, one of the best ways he can do that is on people's marriage. And so we want to pray for them and pray for God's protection over them and over their marriage. And ultimately this, that what Chris has a priority to do is to love and serve his bride as Christ loves and serves the church and then also his family. And so we want to also, as members of Gospel Community Church, hold him consistent to what he's committing to today. So I'm going to read this certificate of ordination and then present it to you, Chris. And oh, we have a gift for you, but I forgot to give it. So I, I, I forgot to get it. Yeah, it's arrows. So don't buy arrows. You just bought a new bow, so don't, don't get arrows. Yeah, you're going to need like three or four more dozen than what we're going to get you if you shoot like Brad and I do. So just, <laughs> just remember that. So yeah, okay. Chris Kyle, having approved his calling to the ministry of gospel, to the gospel of Christ, and being tested by his faithfulness to his family, and Gospel Community Church, and having met the biblical qualifications of an overseer prescribed by Scripture, has by the imposition of hands, through the approval of the members of Gospel Community Church, been set apart and ordained as an elder to the ministry of the gospel on the 18th day of February 2024. The members of Gospel Community Church hereby recognize his divine ordination and confer upon him all the rights and privileges of an ordained pastor so long as he is in fellowship with Gospel Community Church, maintaining a godly life, and holding fast to sound doctrine as taught in scripture. Chris, here you go. It's official. Church family, if you're comfortable, do this. Let me explain. Extend a right hand. The right hand is what we did on the February 18th. We placed hands on Chris, ordaining him, recognizing that he's an elder. There's not some sort of magical chi power that comes forward through our hands whenever we lay hands on him. What it is, it's actually affirming and saying we recognize this man to be an elder. We want this man to pastor and lead our church. So by extending your right hand, you're saying the same thing. We recognize this. We affirm this. So we'll pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for Chris and for Jess. We pray uh, for not just for Chris and for Jess, but for Sylvia and Rhea. We pray that Chris would love Jess as a reflection of how you love him and how you love your bride. We pray that he would prioritize his wife and his family. And we pray that there would be just, well, I pray it this way, Father, that grace would abound in their home, that you would squash self-righteousness, that you would squash criticism, defensiveness, and anything like that. And I pray there is a deep abiding rest in who they are in you, Jesus. Give them security, give them protection. We pray that you would guard them and guard their marriage against the enemy. We pray that you would protect him. Father, we pray this, that you would help them to live consistent to who he is in Christ, to love you, Father, and to love his church family well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to Romans. Epistle of Romans. We are continuing there. Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23 today. And this is what I want you to walk away remembering. If you remember anything today, remember this. We are free to truly live. We are free to truly live. We were looking at last week, Romans 6, the verses prior, uh, the, the verses prior to this in verses 1 through 14. And we noticed that you are either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. You are either in sin or in Christ. You either have the master of sin or you have the master of Christ. And so we're going to continue to look at that today. But I want us to see this, that we are free to truly live. I think in a lot of ways, we've been sold a bill of goods and a bogus view of what freedom is. And when we think through freedom, oftentimes in the US, what we think about is autonomy, I am free to live completely how I want, do whatever I want to do, and here's what I need you to do. I need you to get behind it and not just tolerate it, but celebrate it. This is my lifestyle. This is what I've chosen. This is how I want to live. I'm free to live this way. It's it's my right. I'm free to speak this way. I'm free to do whatever it is, and you just need to not tolerate it. We also need to celebrate it. Freedom, as we look to what Scripture has to say about it, paints a whole different picture. You see, we're not just freed from something. We're actually freed to someone and for something. That's why Paul says this in Galatians 5, which if there was a verse that I would just say, this is consistent to what I'm going to teach today. It's this, 5.13 says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Listen, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, in uh, in other words, for sin, but through love serve one another. You're set free, but what are you set free from? Well, you're set free from a lifestyle of sin. Who who, who are you free to? You're, You're free to God. What are you free for? To live a new life consistent to who you are in Christ. As we look at this book, we can even understand this is not a how to book. The Bible, sadly, I think many people have reduced it down to a set of rules or some sort of life manual. That's not what it is. It's this book of radical captivity, but also radical rescuing. In other words, mankind, because of our sin and our sin against God, is held in captivity by sin. Unable to rescue ourselves, God writes himself into the story as the rescuer himself in Jesus Christ to provide the rescue that we need that we can't do ourselves. The story is, the Bible's telling that story. It's highlighting that, ultimately for the glory of God. And so we're going to look at that this morning, that we are free to live and truly live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the Kyle's. We thank you for even the new life that we hear in this room through the babies. But we ultimately praise you for the new life that you give in your son. Speak to us this morning, Father, where our lives are lived in rebellion against you. Soften them, please. Let us know this, that the good God who sent his son to rescue us is also the good God who's given good commands on how life will be best lived. Show us what true freedom in Christ is this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In no means, by no means, do I want to highlight my sin and have you think it's awesome in some sort of way, even as Paul is going to say in this passage, what sort of fruit did I get from the lifestyle I used to live? None, other than what I'm ashamed of. But I'll say this, that... I used to be in the importer-exporter business. I'll just say that. And I made several trips to Tijuana to transport stuff back across the 
border into the U.S. You can read between the lines, hopefully. Sharp group of people. So I went down there multiple times, and the first time brought everything back across, made it free. The second time I was arrested until we could pay our fines, and then we were released. We were set free. The third trip I made down there, I was not only arrested, but then I was taken to go see the judge. So they took me to jail where I had to see the judge. The judge made me pay a fine, but then I was free to go. Not only was I free to go, the judge of justice gave me all of my product. Great judge. Told me how to get out of the city. Each time, I was set free. But what was I free to do? Continue to do the same thing I did the year before, that I did the year before, with the same patterns. The U.S. has the highest return rate to prison out of any country in the world. 50% of inmates will return back to prison within one year of being released. See that, my brother, who's been in prison twice already. You see, it's not just enough to be set free from something. We're not just set free to moral neutrality. We're not just set free to go in the world and do whatever. We're actually set free from something, and we're set free to someone and to something. This book is a relational book about how we can be in right relationship with the God that we were created for. And only then will we experience what it is to truly be free. Let's read, starting in 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the thing in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. It's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to look at this. That we are given freedom. We are free to truly live. But in, in verses 15 and 16, I want to see this. That we're free to honestly assess ourselves. We're, we're free to honestly assess ourselves. Paul is saying, look, you're either obedient to this or you're obedient to this. You're either slaves of this or slaves of this. So we need to have an honest assessment of where we're at. So we're free to honestly assess ourselves. In 17 and 19 through 19, we're going to see this, that we're free to obey with true motives. We're not just called to freedom. We're actually called to live a new life. But that new life is given to us with true motives. And lastly, in verses 20 through 23, we're going to see that we're free to be transformed. So look here. Paul is continuing this thought that he started at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, what then? Are, are, we, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. What is Paul saying? Before this, he said something. He goes, look, you 
Please listen, church family. You will never be saved. This is not my words. This is Paul's words. This is God's words. You will never be saved by your own righteousness. You will never be saved by trying to uphold God's law. You will never be saved by obeying God's commands. And some of you need to hear that because you came in here this morning investigating Christianity and you think that it's just this religion that is about how well you can obey rules when it's contrary to that. It's actually a message that either you receive or reject, but it's not about how you live. It's about how someone else lived 2,000 years ago. So when Paul says, there's, there's no way that you can be saved by your adherence to the law. What he's saying is you're, you're under grace. In other words, grace has saved you. Grace is a gift that you can't earn. God saves us by his own grace, by his own doing. You can't earn that. It's freely given. But then the question begs and goes like this. Well, since, since we can't save ourselves by obeying the law, then do we just get to do whatever? and live however we want? Paul says, by no means. He says this in 16. Do you know that if you present yourselves, in other words, give yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either He's telling who, who that anyone is. Either you're obeying sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. How do we honestly start to assess ourselves? What we are obedient to? What are we presenting ourselves to? Let me ask this. How do you view God? How do you you view the Father? If you view God like this, as this distant, disconnected person, who whenever you sin or whenever you mess up pays those debts but wants nothing to do with you, you have a false view of who God is. What you have is a God who, look, when I screw up in life and I mess up, there's this God out there and, and he's going to take care of those debts for me, but it's just this distant, disconnected relationship. The God of the Bible does everything he does, sending his son to suffer and die so that we could be in a relationship with him. In order to understand what Paul's getting at, we have to understand that what God is doing is not just freeing us to go out there and be disconnected, to be morally neutral, to be removed from him. What he's doing is he's freeing us from the oppression of sin and slavery and restoring us into a relationship with him. We have to understand where we're at in Romans. In chapters one and two, it's displaying, if you go back and read it, who God is. It's showing us that he's a holy God, that he's just, that we have not measured up. And so we go, whoa, that's who God is. But then we say, well, what has he done? Well, he's put forth his son as a sacrifice to redeem us and to rescue us. Now, starting in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, what he's showing us is now look who you are. This is who God is. This is what he's done in Jesus. Now, this is who you are. You are not who you once were. You are not enslaved like you once were. You are not this person. You are a new person, a new creation with a new identity wrapped in Jesus. How do you view God? How do you view the church? What are you serving? I'm going to give you four T's. Where are your thoughts? Where are your time? Where are your talents? And where are your treasures? Because if you're wondering what you're serving and what your masters are, those are four really easy, practical ways to say, maybe this is what I'm presenting myself to. Again, in the text, he says, do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? What are you presenting yourself to? Let me ask you this, thoughts. Let's honestly assess. Who or what do you dream about? 
a new job, a spouse, a family, more income, power, financial, financial security, retirement, the body you once had, the body you want back, the marriage you want, the spouse you want, weight loss, muscle gain, you name it. What rules your mind? Often the things that are ruling your thoughts and mind are the very things that you're living for. What about time? What do you give your time to? No, no one probably wants to do this, but you could open it up and just your phones tell you how much time you spend on social media and stuff like that. That's really cool. And you could see maybe how much time you give to those things. But here's what else we give our time to. Our hobbies, our work, our overworking, our TV shows, to our family and children. There's this article written on the Gospel Coalition. And, and a woman said, I listened to a preacher talk about how a room full of people was, were, were just longing for power and affluence and all these things. And she realized, that's not what I struggle with as a mom. She's, she said this, it came to me this Sunday while sitting behind a family with six or seven kids and listening to the pastor talk about the things we sacrifice to God's agenda. He was talking about how the disciples had ambition for the wrong things, power in an earthly kingdom. He went on to apply that faulty expectation to misplaced ambitions in our lives, wealth, power, and fame. He clarified that these things are not inherently, incurably wrong, and some devoted Christians do indeed gain wealth, power, and fame, but he spoke of the lust for them, the chasing after them, the have to have them, the sum total of my being, of being the problem. He quoted David Paulson, good gifts, bad gods, true, powerful, and convincing words, he said. What she went on to say is that for her as a mom, the very thing that she gives her thoughts and her time to is idolizing her children. Sometimes in the way men do it, idolize their jobs to the neglect of their family. Sometimes spouses do that to the, to the neglect of their spouses. They prioritize all their thoughts and all their time in and around that, and they make their kids the very existence to their being, the thing that they wrap themselves around. Again, when the Bible talks about idols, the things we worship, we oftentimes go, yeah, it's not good to do black tar heroin. But what the Bible's oftentimes talking about is the very good things that God created that then we take and we make God things. We make them our everything. They give us our worth, our purpose, and our existence. She went on to say that what I live for, what my thoughts and time are given to is I want my kids' approval. I want to know that I'm in good terms with them. I want them to adore me as a mother and think that what I'm doing is special them. That's what her time and her thoughts were given to. What are our talents given to? What do we give our talents to? When I say talents, I'm speaking of the natural and spiritual gifts God has given us. Some people are naturally talented with many things, but instead of seeing those things as kingdom talents, they become wasted talents. Let me ask you this. Has God given you maybe a wealth of biblical knowledge that almost no one benefits from? Do you, what do you do with the spiritual gifts God gives you? How are they being used to love and serve and build up your church family, which is the whole purpose behind them for the glory of God? What do you use your talents on? What are you serving? Treasures. If you want to know what someone worships, have them open their checkbook. I know no one has checkbooks anymore, so that's irrelevant. Open up your bank app. Pull it up. What you'll notice is this. There's people that are worshiping their comfort. There's people that are worshiping their body image. If you're spending more money at Miss Mears or Mr. Mears, 
If you're in debt and can't give to your local church family, but you can still go on vacations, buy supplements, and do every other thing, I'm just challenging. Be challenged, please. Where are your treasures? Anytime money gets brought up in church, people get funny. Money makes people funny. I get it. But, but typically people go, I'm, out. I'm really glad you guys are doing what you're doing on a Sunday. Like that there's people here preaching the word, doing all this. I don't want to give to it. I'm thankful you guys are here. Our treasures oftentimes show where our heart is. So let me ask this. Based upon Paul's question here, or his statement, do you not know in verse 16 that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. If you honestly assess yourself, where is your thoughts, your time, your talents, and your treasures being given to? What are the things that maybe you're serving? What are the things you're giving your life for? What are the masters of your life? And here, let me ask this. Are the very things that you're giving your thoughts, your time, your treasures, and your talents to, are they able to satisfy you? What have they done to prove their love for you? So there's no way your hobbies can love you back. There's no way the hobbies are, that you worship are going to go to the cross and give their life for you. Oftentimes, we're giving our hearts and our lives to the very things that are incapable of even loving us back. Let's look at this, that we're free to obey with different motives. 17, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Let me say this. You have the freedom to look at your thoughts, time, talents, and treasures, and honestly assess without being defensive if you have a greater identity in Christ. I recently met with a man and a woman, love them dearly, uh, been married for 30-something years. Uh, she's a strong Christian. He is not. And I, I asked him this question. I said, are there areas in your life where you have shortcomings or where you need forgiveness? And he said, no. The Christian woman said, in 30-something years of marriage, I've never heard the words, I'm sorry. And so I said, in front of the wife, I said, so there's no areas in your life you need forgiveness in or to grow in or anything like that? I don't know. Okay. Uh, so you perfectly love, serve, and sacrifice your own personal needs to, to the interests of your wife? And she goes, Nope. Why would this person have to defend themselves so much? Because either you have a righteousness that's given to you from Christ that you rest in and say, L listen, the message of Christianity is not for the little engine that could. If you've been around, you've heard me say this, for the train wrecks who admit that they absolutely can't. Absolute train wrecks that go, I cannot save myself. Now, if you, are, if you need to prove yourself righteous, to everyone around you, you will be very defensive. But if you understand that you have righteousness that comes to you from outside of you that's been given to you as a free gift of God's grace, then you have freedom to look at these things and say, yeah, I'm selfish with my time, with my thoughts, with my treasures, and with my talents. But I know who wasn't. Christ lived and walked this earth, fully devoting every thought to God, taking every thought captive. He he, he gave his time in, in perfection. 
talents, treasures, all given for God. And then here's what he did. He died on the cross as a thoughtless, selfish, self-consumed, egotistical, arrogant sinner. Because he took all the things that we are and made them his. But then he took all that he is and made them ours. So in God's eyes, you are thoughtful. In God's eyes, you are a good steward of your time. In God's eyes, you are a good steward of your talent and your treasures. Not because you are, but because Christ was and he made those things yours. Now here's what this does. If you understand that, that's called the gospel. That's the good news. That we don't look at what we do in our own efforts. We look at what Christ did. We, we, we proclaim that. Now, if you look at that and understand that, then we can become obedient from the heart because now for the first time, and maybe the first time ever, for some of you that have been following Jesus for a long time, you recognize and understand this. My obedience is not about me controlling God to love me and accept me. God loves me and he accepts me based upon what Christ has done for me. Therefore, my obedience now has nothing to do with that. I have true obedience. I am free to obey God. I am free to truly live, not because I'm going to merit God's love. I already have it. And so when he says that thanks, but thanks be to God, he doesn't say, but thanks be to your efforts or your own righteousness. He says, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, which means this. You are free to obey with true motives for the first time. When you grasp all that Paul is saying, that you're no longer a slave of sin, that you're no longer controlled by this master for the first time in, in your life, you can be free to obey God's commands that he lays out because you recognize that God's not going to love you based upon how well you obey his commands. Imagine two runners that line up to race. And what they're racing for is this. The winner is going to get the grand prize. He's going to get a mansion. He's going to get wealth and he's going to get all sorts of security. So they line up to race. They've been training like crazy. There's just one difference. Someone came to the one runner and said, hey, no matter what, at the end of the race, I'm going to give you all the security, all the inheritance and everything like that. All you have to do is run. You see a motive switches. Both are still going to run the race, but who runs with a ton of freedom? The one who realizes that everything is hinging upon how well he runs and upon how well he races. And if he doesn't do it right and do it perfectly, then he's not going to get the ultimate award or the person that says, I already have it. I can't change that I have God's love. I can't change that I am righteous in Christ. I'm just free to run because I rest in the one who ran the race perfectly on my behalf. So now obedience, we're free to obey with different motives. Paul is preaching on a backdrop of Stoic philosophy and Epicureans. You see, the Stoics said you have to be moral, and they practice asceticism, which means that they would whip themselves, they would beat themselves, and they would do stuff to try to prove how moral they were. Then you had the Epicureans, and they said that what you do in life is never say no to yourself. You live life for your own purpose. We're actually free to obey from true motives. We're free to say yes to God's righteous commands that he lays out in the teaching. Not so that our obedience to those things will get us God's love. We're free to say yes to God's commands because we understand that his commands are good and they're going to live to a, uh, lead to a joyful lifestyle. But we're also free to say no. 
We're free to say no with the right motives too. Some of you guys need to practice this week saying yes with the right motives that I've been trying so hard and I'm exhausted to, to, to merit God's love. And some of you need to practice saying no. What, what do I mean by no? Exercise your freedom to say no. If your drinking leads to your pornography addiction, say no to drinking for a season. If your drinking leads to your use of cannabis that then leads to your pornography addiction, stop drinking for a season. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you are the mom who idolizes your family, maybe leave the kids at home with dad if that's an option for you for some time. You see, we have this freedom to say yes, to say no. Yes to God's good commands, no to the things that will destroy our life. We also have this freedom. Look here at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have the freedom. So you've been set free from your sin. It's no longer your master. It's no longer a cruel master, but you've been set free to something, to God. And you've been set free to be able to live with true motives from a true heart. We can actually truly live. You're going to have to be okay with God coming in your life and messing some things up, though. Look at this quote by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come in and live in it himself. When the scripture talks about sanctification, when it says in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. It's in eternal life. Paul is not saying that the more that you look like Christ and grow into Christ, you're going to get eternal life. Read the next verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. What Paul is saying is this. When Christ comes into your life, he gives you a new jersey. He puts you on a new team. And, 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 and in some sense, you're giving a new playbook, a new set of rules that now you're free to live by them, knowing that those commands are actually going to lead to a joyful lifestyle. His question is this, hey, do you remember your old lifestyle, the one you were ashamed of? What benefit did you get from that? Some of you are worn out this morning. You're tired and you're exhausted because going against the way God has commanded life is going to be like going on a treadmill. You know those weird escalator things in the airport you can walk on, you go really fast? It'd be like going to the other end and just constantly walking against it. That's what going against, if the creator of human life says, here's how it's going to work best. And, and here's the thing, I, I've taken care of the fact that whether you want to be right with me is not even based upon you, it's based upon what my son's done in your place, but now you're free to live and truly live with me and for me, and the commands that I give are actually going to live to a full life, to joy, to peace, 
but living on a treadmill is not. You know what sin is like? It's like drinking salt water. The more that you drink, the more you need. And Christ comes in and says, I'm the well that never runs dry. Only I can satisfy and quench your thirst. I don't know about you, but I, but, but I hear all this and go, man, I still struggle with sin. And I would say, yeah, your pastor deeply struggles with sin. Here's the difference. There's a struggle. Let us struggle and struggle well. Paul's going to get into that as we look at Romans 7. But let me say this in ending. Some of you are tired and exhausted of the things that you're currently ashamed of that you're hiding. Whatever your addictions are, whatever those things are, I need you to hear this. The gospel is the good news, which means this, that God is going to take you right where you are. He's not saying clean yourself up, make yourself better, anything like that. It says, take you right where you are. But here's the thing. The gospel is transformative. There's this awful Super Bowl commercial. I'm sure you guys are familiar with it, of Jesus washing people's feet. Here's my big problem with it. Christ takes us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there because he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. He comes in in our life and he rebuilds things and he tears things down and he builds things up because he knows how life is going to be best lived and lived joyfully. As Kate said earlier, he's fulfilled the commands that he's given so that we can now obey them with a true motive. We're free to truly live. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the freedom, true freedom to live. Thank you for your commands that instruct us how to live life, but thank you for fulfilling them because we never could. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.